Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue that takes a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidle, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Monday, April 25th, 2022, and while our family is still bonding with our new baby, I'm excited to bring to you part four of my Solving Guns project. This is a multi-part series that we're sharing first with our Polylog listeners, a project that I've spent years on. The goal is to examine every form of gun violence, to go deep on the reasons why people own guns in the first place, and to find solutions without passing laws limiting gun access. Not because laws like this are a bad idea or a good idea, but because laws are not solving this issue right now. Whether you love guns or hate them, my hope is that the solutions here can unite those on the left and the right behind one goal, to save lives, something we can all agree on. You can find this project online at solvingguns.org, which is housing this chapter. You can also find access to the 2,000 plus pages of facts and statistics that I leaned on for this project. So let's begin. This is part four. This part introduces the issue of guns used in crime and one of the top reasons guns are used violently, resolving disputes. How can we reduce this kind of gun violence without the need for gun control legislation? When you think of gun violence, you think of one person on one side of the gun and another person on the other side. In most gun violence, though, the person firing and the person fired at are one and the same. Stopping suicides is very different from stopping homicides, but let's look at homicides. Guns are involved in 7 out of 10 homicides in America, and there are 11,000 of them every year. So anything we can do to reduce gun homicides will have a huge effect on the overall murder rate. How do we stop murders? Well, let's look at who is being murdered, who's doing the murdering, and the circumstances surrounding each. The most likely victims of firearm violence are male, 18 to 24 years old, and black. These are also the most likely perpetrators. Each of these data points tells us something. Men are more violent than women by a significant margin. They're seven times more likely to commit homicide. The ages of 18 to 24 are absolutely the most dangerous period in the lifetime of men. Gather a random sampling of 18 to 24 year old men, a large high school's worth, say 2,000 people, and one person among them will commit murder each year. Literally half of all murders are committed by offenders under the age of 25. And a third of victims are the same age. The crazy thing is that this fact is true not just in America, but across the globe. Black Americans are at the greatest risk, both of being victims and offenders. A considered black man aged 18 to 24, literally one in every 1,000, will be murdered each year. That's insane. This rate of victimization is literally three times the rate of the most dangerous Central American and Southern African countries. Overall, black Americans are six times more likely to be victims of homicide than white Americans. So what can we do to make a dent in the murder rate? How can we stop homicides? Well, many of the ideas from the other videos, those ideas will make a difference for the other half of homicides, the half not committed by young men. Ideas like making guns safer, introducing alternatives to gun ownership, and even finding ways to keep guns out of the home altogether. 
these will go a long way in removing guns from the violence equation. But there's a great divide between the use of guns for sports and home protection and the use by young people that leads to most homicides. We have to ask ourselves then, why do young people carry guns? First, it's important to note that guns are just a form of force. Like other forms through the ages, they can serve a variety of purposes. They serve as a means to solve disputes, whether it's through intimidation or actual violence. Guns are, for young people, as they are for the military, a weapon that increases one's power of persuasion. What else? Well, because guns are themselves powerful, they serve as a means to achieve respect and social standing within a group. Violence and intimidation have long been a way to gain respect, particularly within a close-knit society of young men. Towards that same end, guns are also a means to defend the respect you've earned, to defend your honor by exacting revenge on those who challenge you, or who disparage those you love by action, by word, or, or by even glance. It's the Wild West mentality, something that is without question real and an animating force for gun violence. And finally, because guns give you power over others, that power is easy to abuse. Just as the colonial empires abused the power of their militaries by seizing territory that wasn't their own, young people can all too easily abuse the power of their guns by seizing property that isn't theirs. Guns are useful in the commission of all sorts of crimes. They may even encourage them. So that's four reasons, four reasons that all have one thing in common, control. Guns provide control and power to individuals without them. Because look, these needs that guns are fulfilling, they're not abnormal needs. They're the most normal things in the world. They're things that everyone wants. A way to solve disputes? We all have disputes. There are more than 40 million lawsuits filed in this country every single year. We all need some way to resolve our differences. Respect and social standing? Half of everything everyone does every day has to do with looking for respect and social standing. It's why we go to parties, why we wear a tie to work, or polish our shoes for church. It's why we go to birthday parties we don't want to go to, and why we post to social media. Defending your honor? That literally describes every act of road rage ever committed. Every passive-aggressive post-it left on the refrigerator at work. Every I'll-prove-the-haters-wrong speech. The need to defend your honor is real, even if the mechanisms are different. Even if we'd rather pretend our ego didn't exist. Oh, and the abuse of power? Every bad boss, every spiteful teacher or money-grabbing cable company demonstrates abuse of power in everyday life. And everyone's vulnerable to it. These are all perfectly normal emotions and needs. What's abnormal is that guns are being used to fulfill them. So how can we find ways to help those at risk of violence, 18 to 24 year olds, how can we help them fulfill these needs without guns? Let's start with disputes. How do we solve disputes without violence? The courts, you might say, but the courts aren't always readily available, and here's why. Some of the disputes are surrounding illegal activities. Not all of them, but a good amount. 
The same 18 to 24 year olds who make up 33% of annual drug sale and manufacturing arrests are, in many respects, the 18 to 24 year olds who are most likely to commit homicide. In fact, half of all arrests for drug sale and manufacturing are between the ages of 18 and 29. Why go to the police to resolve an offense when the police could jail you for a drug-related offense? The legal system is simply an unlikely tool for resolving disputes when your entire living is made illegally. And even if you don't make your living illegally, enough people in your neighborhood might. So that going to the police feels more like going to the enemy than a trusted arbiter of justice. It's also worth noting that you don't need money to press a criminal case, but you do need it to invoke a civil one. Those without money to spare are by their nature at a disadvantage in using the legal system to resolve problems. So what other means are available? We can take three tacks here. First, we can make the existing legal system more accessible. Organizations like the Legal Services Corporation help hundreds of thousands of low-income individuals access legal services to resolve their disputes. More efforts could be made to advance this organization's role in expanding civil dispute resolution. Second, we could promote systems for resolving disputes at the community level. These would be community efforts that don't involve the legal system but are still socially binding, like community councils and informal neighborhood tribunals. And third, if the activities in dispute are illegal, like those in the drug industry, what can we do? Well, today such disputes can only be resolved outside of the legal system, usually through violence. This happens with both small-scale disagreements, like ones between two teenage friends who are dealing drugs, and it happens with large-scale disagreements, like those between rival gangs or cartels. But what if there was a way to resolve these disputes without violence? There are two directions we could take with this. Here's the first. Make it so that evidence put forwards in one trial cannot be used against defendants in another trial, at least for the drug industry. Essentially, turning a blind eye to the drug-related issue in order to effectively resolve the dispute without violence. That may be a tall order, but consider what an impact it could have in reducing violence. People who before had no choice but to argue their point with the pointed end of a gun could now argue it in court. There'd be fewer shootouts, fewer drive-bys, fewer unsolved homicides. Like in Chicago, 70% of homicides go unsolved. And there'd be fewer stories of hapless citizens caught in the crossfire. To make it work would require the public to take a stand and say once and for all, violence is worse than illegal substances. We as a society choose to prioritize the reduction of violence, the saving of lives, over the prosecution of a black market. To be effective, we'd need to convince those in the drug trade that the legal system can be trusted to resolve these disputes without throwing everyone in jail. It's in their interest to trust, since violence is a costly proposition for any business, legal or not. A change like this may seem impossible in the current political climate, but consider that a program just like this already exists, not for illegal drugs, but illegal immigrants. In 1989, domestic violence was rampant in San Francisco. People were being hurt and not reporting it to law enforcement. Why? The victims were afraid that if they came forward to report the violence, they'd be deported. You see, San Francisco then, as now, had a very large population of undocumented immigrants. 
whatever you feel about illegal immigrants, deporting victims of violent crime isn't nearly as effective in protecting public safety as prosecuting the perpetrators of violent crime. The country's immigration laws were getting in the way of that public safety. It was silencing victims and protecting violent offenders. So the city wrote an ordinance. If you can contact law enforcement to report a crime, you won't be deported. The city made a decision. Preventing violence was more important than deporting people. And with that, San Francisco became a sanctuary city. It was one of the first, but it wasn't the last. Today, sanctuary cities and jurisdictions dot the landscape from Tulsa to Los Angeles. The international chiefs of police explain the importance of cooperation with all immigrant populations in this way. They wrote, quote, Immigration enforcement by state and local police could have a chilling effect in immigrant communities and could limit cooperation with police by members of those communities. Local police agencies depend on the cooperation of immigrants, legal and illegal, they wrote, in solving all sorts of crimes and in the maintenance of public order. Without assurances that they will not be subject to an immigration investigation and possible deportation, many immigrants with critical information would not come forward, even when heinous crimes are committed against them or their families. They went on, because many families with undocumented family members also include legal immigrant members, this would drive a potential wedge between police and huge portions of the legal immigrant community as well. This will be felt most immediately in situations of domestic violence. For example, the International Chiefs of Police wrote, many law enforcement agencies have been addressing the difficult issues related to domestic abuse and the reluctance of some victims to contact the police. This barrier is heightened when the victim is an immigrant and rightly or wrongly perceives her tormentor to wield the power to control her ability to stay in the country. The word will get out quickly that contacting the local police can lead to deportation or being separated by a border from one's children. Should local police begin enforcing immigrant laws, more women and children struggling with domestic violence will avoid police intervention and help. That was from the International Chiefs of Police article called Enforcing Immigrant Law, the Role of State, Tribal, and Local Law Enforcement. So just imagine the impact that a similar program could have surrounding drugs. Now, the other way to do this, to help resolve disputes without violence, would take a different track. Rather than turning a blind eye to black markets, it would make black markets legal markets. It would find ways to legalize certain drugs to bring the industries into the sunlight and reduce violence. Remember the common image of gangs during the Prohibition era with their Tommy guns blazing? The 1920s wasn't just roaring with parties, it was roaring with gunfire. Gunfire that made those parties possible. Prohibition prohibited alcohol, but it didn't prohibit demand for it. So the parties persisted, the trade in alcohol persisted, but the formerly legal industry was driven into the shadows. With no way to protect itself through the legal system and myriad opportunities to rat out the competition, alcohol producers armed themselves. They became, in many respects, small armies. Consider the amount of violence in Al Capone's Chicago and compare that to the violence you see at your local BevMo today. The violence of prohibition wasn't how it was supposed to work. Prohibition started, you may remember, as an effort to reduce violence, domestic violence, the violence of husbands and partners against their wives and families, fueled by alcohol. 
Women were determined to defend themselves, if not in the home, then in the ballot box. When they achieved the right to vote, prohibition was one of the first priorities of female voters. But the demand for alcohol couldn't be squashed. By throwing an entire industry into the shadows, the goal of reducing violence backfired. At the same time domestic violence rates declined, violent murder rates rose. The repeal of prohibition, that is to say, the legalization of alcohol, reduced this violence more than any G-men ever could. Black markets became legitimate markets, alcohol prices plummeted, and the Tommy guns stopped firing. In fact, rates of violence for those in their 20s increased by as much as 18% when dry laws are passed, and then goes back down when those laws are repealed. The slow legalization of marijuana will be the first modern-day test of this strategy. Legalization means the substance is legal, but it also means that the business is legal, which in the end may be more important. Legal industries are protected by the law, not just those who deal drugs, but those who make it. Not just those who profit by it, but those who use it. Legal industries are, by their nature, safer industries. And if safety, if, if preventing violence, is our ultimate goal, legalizing illegal trade is worth serious consideration and discussion. Okay, so that's the dispute side of things. Young people have another need that guns fulfill, a need to gain respect and social standing. Understanding why and what we can do about it will be our focus next week. So that's the end of part one on the topic of guns used in crime. I can't wait to share with you some of the solutions next week. In the meantime, you can learn more at solvingguns.org. If you have any thoughts or feedback, you can email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can tweet at me at beastidle. You can tweet at Naomi at sotonaomi underscore. And you can tweet at the show at polylogcast. Thanks, everyone, and we'll talk with you again next week. Bye.